second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedarata.com. So I'm going to start on a sober note and I hope that you uh, will indulge me for a moment. And so I would like to take a minute to acknowledge the Ukrainian scientists and scholars who we know for certain have been killed in the Russian siege, because of course there are probably many others. So I just wanted to read their names and just, I just felt that it was something important. And I do apologize if I mispronounce any of these. My uh, pronunciation of Eastern European names is no better than my pronunciation of anything else. And um, I'm really going to do my best. And I feel bad if I um, am not able to pronounce someone's name properly. Okay, here we go. Alexander Kaisliuk was a law professor at the for Home Manov National Pedagogical University. Iona Kurovska was a law professor at the Legislation Institute of the Verkhovna Rada of Ukraine in Kyiv. Maxim Pavlenko was an engineer at the Institute of Molecular Biology and Genetics in Kyiv. Alexander Corson was an inorganic chemist at the V.N. Karazin Kharkiv National University. Yevhen Korykov was a social scientist at the Taras Shevchenko National University in Luhansk. Oleg Amosov was a professor of economics also at the V.N. Karazin Kharkiv National University. Yulia Zanovska was 21. She was a rising math star at Taras Shevchenko National University in Kyiv. Yevhen Kryakov was an educational researcher at the also at Taras Shevchenko National University of Kyiv. And finally, Vasily Kladko was an X-ray crystallographer at, again, the VE, or sorry, at the VE Leshkaryov Institute of Semiconductor Physics. And finally, Andrei Kravchenko, 41, was a chemist at the Chiyoko Institute of Surface Chemistry. Kravchenko had been working for years developing a topical coagulant that staunches bleeding while a soldier is being transported to medical help. His team had delivered the first batch just days before his car was shredded by a man by landmine. 
He dreamed it would appear in the first aid kits of every Ukrainian soldier, said Chiuko colleague Maria Galaberda. Such a heavy and painful loss. He was all, he always greeted you with a charming smile. Oh, we will miss this optimistic smile, she said. Now, um, the other notable thing is that MIT, their math department, uh, last month announced that they had created a project called Yulia's Dream, which is a free math enrichment program for Ukrainian high school students in, obviously, memory of Yulia Zanovska. And so, yeah, obviously we should mourn all of those lost in this offensive, but I think it is worth noting the loss to knowledge that comes with war. And so it is not just loss of life, it is loss of knowledge, it is loss of potential, it is loss of love and peace and so many other things. Um, and I just, I just wanted to take a minute tonight to talk about this. I don't know what else to say or to do other than to preserve their memory by saying their names and hoping that no more will follow, though I know that that is not true. Um, these people were lost in many different ways. Some were killed due to shelling. Some were actually shot. Um, and most of them were uh, in the places that they were because they were defending their country. And some of them had already seen war before and had survived, and this time they did not. And I just, I can't imagine how horrible it is for the people of Ukraine right now. And I just really wanted to take a moment, because we hadn't taken very much time yet uh, to discuss this, and I think it's really important to have these kinds of records of people and the loss that their deaths cause, not only to their families, which is, I'm sure, unbearable, but to the pursuit of knowledge itself. This is something that happens every day, and it's very, very frustrating, um, there are so many reasons for it, but some of them are far more preventable than others, and war is the most preventable of all in some respects. Okay, thank you for indulging me in a bit of remembrance, even if it can be hard to hear. I think it's important. Okay, so we're going to move on to tonight's stories. And uh, we took a bit of a break from COVID last week, but I think we do need to go back. There's more to talk about. There's always more to talk about, unfortunately, with COVID. And uh, obviously things like the Ukrainian uh, genocide, um, which it 
is what is happening right now, uh, in my opinion. In my opinion, uh, it is becoming clearer and clearer that this could turn out to be a genocide. It may not yet be um, specifically one, but it feels like it's heading that way. Um, so things like that are uh, a little bit higher up in the priority of people right now, which is completely understandable, but COVID is still very much with us. I have had several acquaintances and colleagues uh, come down with it in the last few weeks, and the counts of students at the colleges are still, uh, they are actually on an uptick again. And so again, the pandemic is very much not over. And just to show how absolutely terribly the U.S. has done and continues to do in preventing new infections, a study suggests that at least 75% of children in the U.S. have had COVID. Before Omicron, that percentage was just 44%. Children in the age group 0 to 11 and 12 to 17 took the brunt of the Omicron wave. They had the highest infection rates and had the most new infections than any other age group during the surge. About a third of children were newly infected during this time. Researchers also found that the peak rate for pediatric hospitalization was four times higher during, than during the Delta wave. The largest increase was fivefold for children aged zero to four. And this should make everyone angry. I just, I don't understand why people have been so blasé about children coming down with COVID and the idea that you would not do everything in your capacity to prevent your child from getting COVID just makes me so frustrated. Krista Clark, the lead author of the CDC study, called the data quite shocking, noting that this really reinforces some of our previous findings. The new data comes from an ongoing national seroprevalence survey of blood submitted to commercial labs for routine medical testing and diagnostics. It specifically excludes samples drawn to test for COVID-19 infection. The data set contains between 45,000 and 81,000 samples submitted between September 2021 and February 2022. In order to distinguish true infection from vaccine immunity, the study looked for anti-nucleocapsid, or anti-N, SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, which are only produced in response to an infection with the virus. This test is extremely sensitive and is able to detect antibodies for as long as one to two years after infection. The overall population increase was from 33.5% to 58% after the Omicron surge. Children aged 0 to 11 rose from 44% to 75. Those 12 to 17 rose from 46 to 74 while adults 18 to 49 rose from 36.5% to 
those 50 to 64, from 29% to 50%, and those over 65 from 19% to 33%. And of course, these results are consistent with levels of vaccine uptake among these various groups. As only 28% of children aged 5 to 11 and 59% of children aged 12 to 17 have been fully vaccinated. And as of course we know, children from 0 to 5 are not able to be vaccinated at this time, um, though that might change in the future. And so those children were really relying on the adults around them to be fully vaccinated. And so it's just, I just, I find it very frustrating to talk about because these are children who should have been able to rely on adults to do the right thing. And it's very, very upsetting to me personally. And so we know that just 76% of adults have gotten the full two-shot pri- two primary series, and a mere 46% have gotten a booster. The fact that only 46% of people have gotten a boost booster is just terrible. And I do want to take a moment, though, to say that I understand that a lot of people didn't have great access. And so when I am talking about this, I am talking about the system and the individuals who chose not to. If people didn't have the access or if people have already been so misused by the medical field that they distrust everything that comes from it now, um, you know, a lot of African-American populations Obviously, I make concessions to those very real concerns and feelings and the very real issue with access. Um, there, I know there are a lot of places in the U.S., even though we say that everyone has had access, there are people who don't have time because they work more than one job or they don't have transportation or they don't have something else that they needed in order to be able to get the um vaccinations, especially more than one. And so I don't want to paint too broad of a brush with my condemnation. This is about the structures that prevented those people from getting access and the people who willfully have convinced others that getting vaccines is somehow not one of the best ways to prevent themselves from having terrible diseases, but is somehow worse than the disease that they are trying to prevent, which is so far from the truth that it's just laughable if it wasn't so miserably depressing. And um, I noticed, I noted above, but um, I also think that it had a little bit to do with this idea that somehow got around that, uh, you know, that children didn't get sick from COVID, that it was just a cold and they would be fine. But first of all, this is a pretty poor excuse for allowing children to be infected with what is still an unpredictable and not all that well understood disease. 
But, you know, we still, and in that respect, we still don't know the long-term effects. And so we already have tons of research into uh, people who have experienced long COVID, but we have no idea if COVID is going to uh, do other long-term damage to children. And we know that in adults, some people who had issues with their health after having had COVID didn't even have COVID that was severe. And so to say that because children weren't getting severe cases, that we shouldn't have been as vigilant as we could have been is just, that seems like a very poor excuse. In kids, COVID can certainly be quite severe, Clark stressed in a briefing recently. She noted that among children who were hospitalized, 20 to 30% ended up in the ICU. And while many of these children had underlying conditions, 60 to 70% of COVID-related multi-system inflammatory syndrome cases in children, or MIS-C, were in children with no previous history of illness or infirmity. None. And so we need to stop acting like children are not being affected by this disease because they are. Um, And children, again, they may also experience symptoms of long COVID. And so... Clark finished by reminding everyone, again, as I've been saying, that vaccines are a safe and effective way to protect yourself from severe disease and death, if not outright helping you to avoid infection in the first place. And so, yes, I know that a lot of the people who have gotten COVID recently had both the two-dose series and a booster. We know that, uh, Absolute immunity fades pretty quickly, but all of them have had much lesser, I am almost certain they're having much lesser responses. They're not getting as sick as they would have done had they not been fully vaccinated. And at this point, that's what we really need to focus on. The idea that, well, people still get COVID even when they've been vaccinated That is not an excuse not to get the vaccine. And so speaking of uh, more COVID things, there is a new study out about behavioral adaptations to prevent the spread of COVID, such as wearing masks and social distancing. And so this new study suggests that if the entire country had taken the pandemic as seriously as those in the Northeast did, we could have potentially saved more than 316,000 lives, with 62% of those preventable deaths having occurred in the South. The study was conducted by Georgetown University's School of Nursing and Health Studies and was published this week in the journal PLOS One, or the Public Library of Science One. The study specifically looked at the data for the CDC's weekly calculation of what is called excess mortality. This is a measure of the amount of avoidable deaths 
from a new disease or some other external cause, like an automobile accident, and is defined by the difference between the deaths that took place in the current time period and deaths expected based on historical data, usually from the last decade or so. So it would be something like um, if automobile accidents were a new thing that had happened. And so generally, you're looking at newer things here because at this point, we just kind of have a almost steady rate at which uh, some things happen like accidents, unfortunately. And so the study looked at CDC reports of excess mortality for the period between January 3rd, 2020 and September 26th, 2021. They broke the country into regions, Northeast, Midwest, South, and West. Our goal was to carefully examine regional differences in COVID-19 death rates based on reliable statistical data, said Michael Stoto, PhD, Professor of Health Systems Administration and Population Health at the Uni- at the School of Nursing and Health Science and Health Studies, and corresponding author of the study. Our study is the first to quantify avoid- avoidable deaths and confirm that both COVID nineteen deaths and avoidable deaths disproportionately occur in the South or occurred in the South. The differences between regions have continued throughout the pandemic. Since October 2020, 48% of COVID-19 related deaths were registered in the South, which only accounts for 38% of the overall population of the country, which really kind of highlights the disparity. The researchers calculated that during the time period studied, 895 1,693 excess deaths associated with COVID-19 occurred, a 26% increase from other experts. The official total is nearly a million deaths, but most most researchers believe that with underreporting, we crossed the million death threshold sometime at the beginning of this year. A million people I know humans are really, really bad with big numbers, but a million people is a lot of people. The reason for this discrepancy is that most studies look at excess mortality at the state and county level, and because of these smaller sample sizes, they are not able to look for patterns over time. Many studies have also favored the official statistics for death, which, as we've noted, are almost universally thought to be underreported. This is one of a series of planned studies to look carefully at the response to COVID-19 in the U.S. and other countries and to learn from the experience in order to strengthen preparedness for future potential outbreaks, says Stoto. Our team has also looked at testing and surveillance and other COVID-19 metrics to understand how communities have come together to effectively deal with the pandemic. And so for its own analysis, the CDC recently updated its estimate of how many deaths could have been prevented simply through vaccination and has pegged the number at 234,000 deaths since 
June 2021. These are deaths that could have been prevented with just the primary series, not even a booster. It represents 60% of all adult COVID-19 deaths since that time. To arrive at this number, the agency subtracted the total number of deaths from those who were vaccinated from the the number of deaths for those who were vaccinated from the total number of deaths in each month. They used data on deaths by vaccination status for 25 jurisdictions and calculated that a total of 270,000 unvaccinated adults died during this time. And so, of course, they note that Vaccines are not 100% effective, which is why we had people who had been vaccinated who died that were already subtracted out. And so they applied the calculated effective rate for the vaccines at various time intervals to gauge a clear view of the number of preventable deaths. Now, there were a couple of limitations, which is that uh, there were some people who were partially vaccinated, and so what they did was that they split those people evenly and put half of them into unvaccinated and half of them into vaccinated, which might be not uh, the most uh, accurate way of having done it, but it seemed the best way to do it for this study. And the other thing is, is that some of the effective intervals, so um, the especially for more recently, haven't been calculated yet. So they just had to extrapolate and keep them at the same level as they were for the previous months. And so it's not 100% an exact number, but it is a very good estimate. And so again, this was not even for people who had the booster shot. And so they suggest that even more unvaccinated and even some vaccinated deaths could have been avoided had they had the booster shot. The CDC estimates that in February and March of 2022, unvaccinated people were 10 times more likely to die from COVID than those who had at least the primary series of vaccinations and 20 times more likely than those who had received a booster. They also note, however, that there is a growing share of those, especially among the elderly, that have been vaccinated and boosted who have died. Now, this is most likely due to a variety of factors, including waning protections from vaccines, especially since the elderly were the first to receive vaccines, the larger overall prevalence of the Omicron variant, and the uh, increased transmissibility of the newer uh, versions of the Omicron variant, which have emerged. And so it is starting to tick up. Despite this, the number of deaths for those with both a primary series and booster continues to be considerably lower than any other categories, especially the unvaccinated. And so, yeah, <sighs> we are definitely um, continuing to see these issues. Okay. 
we are going to take a break now and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will talk about uh, some of the other effects this might be having on children and some other things that are happening to them. And so please do continue to listen and I will be back in just a few moments. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. Once again, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as I noted before the break, we are going to return to talking about children for a few more moments. And so a new study suggests 
that we actually may see a knock-on effect of the pandemic in the fact that the disease drove down rates of childhood vaccinations for other diseases. U.S. kindergartners in 47 states, uh, Alaska, Illinois, and West Virginia declined to submit data due to COVID-19 complications of even getting the data. Um, And so kindergartners in 47 states plus the District of Columbia show that for the 2020-2021 school year, vaccinations were down around 1% from the previous year. And that doesn't sound too bad until you realize this puts children under the 95% threshold considered necessary to maintain herd immunity. Vaccination coverage nationally was 93.9% for two doses of measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, or the MMR, 93.6% for the state-required number of doses of diphtheria, tetanus, and acellular pertussis vaccine, or the DTaP, and 93.6% for the state-required doses of varicella vaccine. Though they did note that exemptions remained low at around 2.2%, so there is some silver lining there. And so hopefully as we continue to try to crawl our way back to normality, we will be able to raise the rates back up to herd immunity levels because the last thing we want are new outbreaks of measles, mumps, uh, rubella, pertussis, uh, and, you know, it's just, we definitely want to make sure that we get these kids vaccinated properly because trying to deal with children having outbreaks of uh, infectious diseases while we're already dealing with an extremely infectious disease that is uh, potentially deadly. And some of these childhood uh, diseases are potentially deadly no matter what the anti-vaxxers tell you. Um, They absolutely are and they can also do other things. They can cause deafness and all sorts of other um, debilitating issues. And so they should all be taken seriously. And there's a reason why we uh, developed vaccines for them in the first place. And so, yeah, I think we definitely need to be vigilant about this and make sure that we are um, trying to get those numbers back up because we do not want to have to deal with more outbreaks of infectious diseases than we are already dealing with right now. And again, we failed children so hard when it came to COVID-19. It just seems really wrong to continue to fail them and to expose them to what are otherwise absolutely preventable diseases. And even more distressing for children, I'm sorry, this this episode is not, it's not one of my normal light ones and I apologize. I promise next week we'll go back to um, try and find some more lighter topics to talk about um, because this one is very heavy, but it all seemed really important to talk about. And so um, as I was saying, even more distressing for children is a new rash of severe hepatitis in children that does not seem to be connected to COVID-19, but that has struck almost 
200 children worldwide in the last few months, including at least nine in the United States. And this figure may actually include at least one child now who has died um, from hepatitis due to um, this new way in which hepatitis is attacking children. Uh, So very clearly, it is not associated with COVID-19. So this is not something that uh, is a consequence of, as far as we know, we, we don't find any evidence at this point that it has anything to do with having uh, let children get COVID-19 or the COVID-19 vaccine at all. So just to be clear about that, this is something different. And so um, if you're not aware, hepatitis is basically any inflammation of the liver. And so it can have a number of causes, including viruses, alcohol abuse, certain medications, toxins, and other causes. But obviously, it's most often caused by one of the hepatitis viruses. There are actually five of them. There's A, B, C, D, and E. And so in the U.S., hepatitis A, B, and C are the most common causes of viral hepatitis. And so, again, this outbreak is odd because, for one thing, severe hepatitis is rare in children, and researchers have ruled out a viral hepatitis cause. And so, there are usually a few cases each year, but areas like Scotland have had outbreaks of more than a dozen children in just a few months. And in fact, most of the cases have been from the United Kingdom, with over 100 cases. But A host of other countries have also had cases, including obviously the U.S., uh, Denmark, Ireland, Norway, Romania, and a host of other countries, uh, mostly in Europe. And so most cases occur in children under 10. Now, one of the classic signs of hepatitis is jaundice or yellowing of the skin and the sclera in the eye or the white part. So um, many of the children have had this as well as other um, issues such as abdominal pain, diarrhea, vomiting, all sorts of um, gastrointestinal issues. 17 of the children have required liver transplants, and again, at least one child has died. Researchers suspect that the culprit may be an adenovirus that has previously not been the cause of such acute hepatitis. Because as we know, viruses and uh, bacteria and all of those little things that we can't see are really good at mutating and changing. And so the whole point of a virus is to infect people and to be able to reproduce inside of them. But sometimes in trying to do that, it creates all sorts of havoc as we see in COVID and in the hepatitises and all sorts of other things. And so this adenovirus may have picked up a uh, new gene because, of course, we also know that they engage in horizontal gene transfer and um, with the use of plasmids, which are those little circular bits of Uh, RNA that they switch back and forth between each other. And so this sort of thing can happen. And they think it's the adenovirus because many of the children have tested positive for adenovirus, specifically type 41, 
which actually has previously been linked to hepatitis in children with weakened immune systems, but had not previously been associated with disease in otherwise healthy children. Around 75% of the children tested in the UK showed infection with the adenovirus, but researchers say that they need more time to pinpoint whether it is version 41 or not, though for now all signs point to yes. And so right now researchers are continuing to monitor and explore options for helping these children because we don't know yet how to help them because we've just figured out that this is happening and what's causing it. And so obviously we don't have a vaccine for adenovirus 41 and liver damage is can be quite quickly severe. And so, um, and the fact that a lot of these kids end up having to have liver transplants, especially in America, transplants are so precious and so many people do not uh, donate their organs, which uh, if you're not an organ donor, please go out and become an organ donor. Um, even if you think that you don't have anything in your body that would be useful to people, it can be, I promise. There are all sorts of ways in which being an organ donor can be life-saving. And it can be life-saving from someone who's incredibly healthy, who dies in an accident, to someone who dies of, um, you know, say, coronary heart disease. There are still other parts of your body that might be able to save lives. So please, if you are not an organ donor, please, please, please become one. Um, it's really easy to become one. You can just go on the DMV website, I'm sure, and um, there's probably literally like a tick box where you hit submit um, or something like that. I don't specifically know what it is, but I promise it's very easy to become one and it really, really, really does help. Okay. So we are going to finish up tonight with a couple of stories about neuroscience. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about the brain for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. This is a little less heavy, uh, obviously. And so let's, let's take a moment, take a deep breath, and switch gears. So... You've probably heard me and lots of other people talk about how there's still a ton that we do not even know about the brain. We think we know tons about the brain, but we know just enough about the brain to know that there's plenty about the brain that we do not understand. And uh, so for a tiny bit of uh, history... In ancient times, now this is obviously focused on the West because that's uh, the history that we know best and I tried to look it up a little bit for other um, civilizations, but I figured I would just uh, be clear that this is the Western history of the brain. And so uh, Hippocrates thought that the brain was probably in charge of thought sensation, emotion, and cognition. But Aristotle, oh, Aristotle, who, um, (laughs) 
Aristotle was an extremely important thinker who just was, he just happened to be wrong about almost everything. Pretty much anything that Aristotle thought was wrong. And it would have been not so bad had Aristotelian uh, thought been basically the bulwark of Western thought for around a thousand years. And so if Aristotle said something silly, people probably believed it for far too long. And so he actually thought that the heart was where the action was. And so he thought the heart was the most important organ. And not to say the heart isn't extremely important, but... um, And so the other big player was Galen. And Galen didn't help anything. Uh, He suggested that the important bits of the brain, though he did acknowledge the brain was important, were the fluid-filled ventricles rather than the solid matter. Uh, (laughs) You know, all those neurons didn't actually do much of anything. They were just around the uh, ventricles, which were the real deal. And so he thought that there were three ventricles, one for imagination, one for reason, and one for memory. He believed the body was a sort of hydraulic machine with the brain pumping fluid from the ventricles to various nerves and organs. And so, yeah, there was a lot going on here. Um, I'm pretty sure that Galen also thought that it was um, made of sperm, but that might have been Aristotle. Who knows? (laughs) There's a lot going on. And so obviously, anatomy is an issue here. Uh, The ancients didn't do a lot of gross anatomy on the brain, uh, obviously. (laughs) It's really interesting and funny to hear some of the... um, ideas that people had. But it's also fascinating because they were thinking about these things, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And it's just fantastic. Um, Just because I laugh now that they were wrong about things at the time, that was revolutionary. And I don't want to discount that um, because I am, I personally am the one who is always telling people that our ancestors were just as smart and just as uh, capable as we are now. But the only thing that they lacked was the historical knowledge that we have now. All of the cumulative knowledge that we have makes us feel superior, but we really aren't. And so these thinkers were revolutionary at the time, and they were really creating things like philosophy and science. Again, in the West, I want to be very clear that this is, you know, quote unquote, Western civilization, and that there were all sorts of other things going on in Africa and Asia and India and the Americas. There was all sorts of other things going on. Lots of people were doing a lot of great things with um, astronomy and uh, things like that, and mathematics. Uh, And so, for one thing, the West had a really hard time getting its mind wrapped around zero, which the Indians, uh, the Indian subcontinent, 
was where that came from. It was not, it did not originate in the West. And so it's very important to remember that this is a Western uh, version and that there were great empires doing lots of science and thinking deeply about things elsewhere. And I just think it's important to, to just remember that. And so it wasn't until the 16th century that physicians and scientists began to actually explore the true functioning and anatomy of the brain in Europe. And so needless to say, there is still a lot we don't know because we haven't really understood what the brain does for all that long. The 16th century is not that long ago for understanding such a complex and just absolutely um, wondrous organ. And so, yeah. And of course, evolution has really done all sorts of different things. And, you know, we haven't, we didn't start doing comparative uh, studies on brains until probably the last hundred years. So yeah, lots of things we don't know. Lots of things we don't know about other brains. Um, there is a book that I just put on my wish list about um, the uh, sense of smell in birds and how that is tied to their behavior. And uh, one of the anecdotes about that is that apparently James John, uh, James Audubon was uh, convinced that birds didn't smell. And so then people just assumed that birds didn't smell for a very long time to the point where the person who wrote the book, one of the people that was uh, her advisors in grad school actually said, oh, well, yeah, it's well known that birds don't smell. Guess what? Birds do smell. Um, <laughs> and also uh, James John Audubon, great illustrator, terrible person. Uh if you really want to be depressed, you can look up a uh, biography of Audubon, one of the ones that's been written in, you know, the last 20 years or so. And who boy, not a great guy, not even a great uh, ornithologist, really, um, kind of a terrible ornithologist. And some of those pictures are uh, very wrong. And um, yeah. Anyways, that's a whole different study. That's, I mean, that's a whole different story for a whole different day. Um, let's get back to the brain here. And so it should come as no surprise to hear that researchers at Tufts University School of Medicine have discovered a new function for a kind of cell that literally accounts for almost half of all cells in the brain at least in the brain of mice. As we always like to say, don't bury the lead that it's in mice. But it's probably comparable to humans. They found that astrocytes, cells that guide the growth of axons, the part of the neuron that conducts electrical impulses, control neurotransmitters, and forms the blood-brain barrier, as well as reacting to brain injuries, actually have their own electrical activity, which is kind of a big deal. Previously, they were thought to play a sort of second fiddle to the neurons, which were the stars of the show. While neurons are still doing a lot of the heavy lifting, this puts the astrocytes closer to center stage. 
the electrical activity of astrocytes changes how neurons function, said Chris Dulla, associate professor of neuroscience at the School of Medicine and Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences and corresponding author on the paper from Nature Neuroscience. We have discovered a new way that two of the most important cells in the brain talk to each other. Because there is so much unknown about how the brain works, discovering new fundamental processes that control brain function is key to developing novel treatments for neurological diseases. And so to make this breakthrough, the team created a new technology that allows them to see and study the electrical properties of brain cell interactions, a previously uncharted territory. With these new tools, we've essentially uncovered completely novel aspects of the biology, said lead author Moritz Armbruster, a research assistant professor of neuroscience at the School of Medicine. As better tools come along, for example, new fluorescent sensors are being developed constantly, we'll get a better understanding of things we didn't even think about before. Della explained that the technology use uses light to create images of the electrical activity. Neurons are very electrically active, and the new technology allows us to see that astrocytes are electively, electrically active as well, he noted. Pointing to the important role that astrocytes have in protecting the brain and responding to injury or viral infection, Della says that they next want to see how the astrocytes change when some sort of injury or attack occurs. In addition, they discovered that neurons release potassium ions, which change the electrical activity of the astrocytes and how they control neurotransmitters. So the neuron is controlling what the astrocyte is doing, and they are communicating back and forth. Neurons and astrocytes talk with each other in a way that has not been known about before, he says. And again, it's kind of hard to really explain what a game changer this potentially is, but let's try. It makes us rethink everything astrocytes do and how the fact that astrocytes are electrically active may be influencing a wide range of neurological diseases, he says. In Alzheimer's disease, for instance, astrocytes fail to control neurotransmitters, even though that's a fundamental part of their job. Similar issues occur after traumatic brain injury and in epilepsy. Scientists have long thought that a protein might be absent or a mutation might have caused it to malfunction. Buildup of extracellular potassium in the brain has been hypothesized to contribute to epilepsy and migraine pathologies, said Armbruster. This new study gives us a better understanding of how astrocytes clear this buildup and help maintain a balance of excitation. The researchers are now screening drugs to see if they have had if they have an effect on the communication between the neurons and astrocytes. This may lead to breakthroughs in both disease and damage repair or prevention, as well as even the whisper that it could help the brain function overall. And one of the really cool things is that the technology they developed for this task is now being offered to others to look more closely at other problems and functions. We are giving these tools to other labs so they can use the same assays and techniques to study the questions they are interested in, Dulles says. Scientists are getting the tools to study headache, 
breathing, development disorders, and a wide range of different neurological diseases. So yeah, pretty exciting. And so I did want to get to one more story about sleep tonight, but I don't want to have to uh, talk in uh, triple speed. So let's save that for next week. So yeah, I just think this is really excellent how much more we're learning about the brain. And again, the amount of stuff that we don't know about the brain is crazy. And I think we still have so much to learn about things like processing and consciousness and how memories are formed. Um, There's new imaging that shows all of the nodes that light up across a brain when an when a memory is being um, formed in a mouse. Um, I saw that recently and it was just fascinating that we used to think that there were very discrete places where all of these things happen. And now we find that some of those are true, but others, there are whole, all sorts of different places in your brain that are functioning to help with this sort of processing. So, um, you know, the next time someone tries to tell you that you only use 20% of your brain or whatever that silly thing is, it's completely untrue. We are using all of our brain all of the time. Uh, Maybe not every single neuron at every single moment, but every single neuron is firing at least once a day. Um, I'm going to assume that's off the top of my head. So don't quote me on that. (laughs) But I think it's really important to remember that we're using all of our brain, but also that our brain is really plastic. And sometimes it can figure out how to change after we've had traumatic brain injury which is also amazing and fantastic. All right, but that is all the time we have for tonight. So uh, thank you for listening. And this has been Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.